You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com, Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Shouldn't you be at work? And Love. Oh, and Love, he's got a real chance now. Peter and Love. John Walk will take the penalty. Up goes Dion Dublin. Unknown goal from Ruddock. Four might break here for Kiwabia. Pannister and Bruce in the queue again. Bruce scores. Goal left. Hit left. Hit left over the top. It's now. Now you know him better than anybody probably. Do you back him to score quickly? Yes or no? Yes. Hello and welcome to Quickly Kevin Will He Score? I'm Chris Gold. Joining me as always, Josh Whittacombe. Hello. And also a man who's delighted to learn that PSG have gone 1-0 up against Manchester United. Ollie, how long is he going to be at the wheel? Who knows? It's Michael Mark. Hello. Hello. Ollie's at the wheel. He's careering towards a cliff edge. Michael is cheering him on. We've suddenly become a topical football show. I'm sorry, Michael, but it's the only topical thing that we do want to discuss. Although I would argue it's not really topical because Man United are a 90s team and Oli Gunnar Solskjaer is a 90s man. <laughs> Michael wishes that Oli Gunnar Solskjaer was primarily related to the 90s. <laughs> if only that chapter had closed there. Yeah, in the same way, they should never have brought back Dirty Dan. <laughs> I'm just grateful that it deflects from the whole Peter Michael getting chip thing. Yeah, of course, of course. Well, we've got 400 emails on that. Um, welcome, everyone. Today, we're joined by the amazing uh, John Robbins, who uh, takes us through uh, his worst Liverpool eleven of the 90s. But before that, we've got so much good correspondence, should we just get straight into it? Before Chris brings up whether we think that Marcelo Bielsa is playing the right system at Leeds. <laughs> I'm Jim Rosenthal, and this is the Electronic Post Bag. You've got mail. Okay, we've had so much good correspondence. I know I say this all the time, but, um, well, I haven't said this before, that every time I open an email now in our inbox, I hope it's shit, because we've got so many good ones. <laughs> that I don't know how we're ever going to get through them. Thank you for sending so many in. We're going to do loads of extra special shows coming up uh, in January to fill the gap while we're not on. So we'll try and do some correspondence uh, there. When I say try and do, we could do it forever. To give you an idea, I've got an email uh, that I reckon one day we will get to about Bjorn Heidenstrom's Instagram. But I don't reckon we'll be getting to that until about November next year. (laughs) Now, we talked about on the last episode, uh, Peter Shilton's phone number on his uh, website. Oh, yes. Yeah, so his mobile phone is is in his uh, Twitter bio. So someone uh, has emailed in, uh, the lovely Andrew Lorimer has emailed in, one step ahead of us. 
he put the number into his WhatsApp and saved it to see what photo came ah, up. Lovely. Clever girl. Clever girl. Is Peter Shilton's wife. Uh, <laughs> of course it is. Or Peter Shilton's using a picture of his own wife. I'm just going to send you the image. But what I love about the image is you can see that Andrew has saved the number in his phone as Peter Shilton. <laughs> Joe, I was, I was just thinking then, would Peter Shilton be the kind of guy who would have a picture of his wife as, as his own WhatsApp profile picture? And I don't. I think he is so obsessed with himself, he yeah, wouldn't no even way. give that Not real estate away. He'd have a picture of his 125 caps. <laughs> I think if he had a picture of him and his wife, she'd be cropped out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, I've sent you the picture so you can see there. That's uh, the picture of Peter Shilton's wife. To prove it, right, moving on, because we have got so much good stuff. Uh, this is from Jamie Fullerton. I'd forgotten this. So this is a do I do I remember this right? But I now remember this being true. I, do you remember this happening? Uh, for safety, this should probably be filed under do I remember this right? But I have a distinct memory of hearing this piece of interesting trivia about Gary Neville. I believe the original source may have been a pop bitch email, which should probably be mentioned. Now defunct mobile phone operator One to One ran a series of adverts in the 90s in which celebs would talk about other celebs they'd most like to have a one to one with. Chris Evans chose John Lennon. For the ad, took a literal stroll inside the Beatles' head to view Lennon's psychedelic thoughts, then was superimposed into footage of John and Yoko's famous bedding. I'm 80% sure that I read that One to One asked various footballers who they'd most like to have a one to one with. In case it resulted in some good advert ideas, Gary Neville said he'd most like to have a one-to-one with Adolf Hitler. (laughs) (laughs) If this is true, Gary would presumably have made the suggestion because he found it intriguing to decipher the horrendous mind of Hitler rather than a fun chinwag. Still, I couldn't help but envisage Manchester United back strolling around inside the dictator's head perusing the genocidal and sexual deviant thoughts floating around him uh, before he's imposed in the Nuremberg rally. I'm uh, not sure if it would have shifted many mobile phone contracts. Very best, Jamie Fullerton. I remember, is that a footballer's yeah, name? That Jamie is a footballer's name, yeah. No, it's not, it's not the Jamie Fullerton, I don't think. Um, uh, that's amazing, isn't it? I'd forgotten about that, but I remember that happening at the time. Right. Oh, very quick one about uh, longest era spanned in a single match. Oh, yes, I love this. You love this. Okay, I went to a West Ham friendly away at Colchester in 1996, when, if I remember rightly, both Peter Shilton and Frank Lampard Jr. appeared for West Ham. Shilton made his pro debut in 1966. Lampard continued playing till 2016, a 50-year stretch in one match. (laughs) Wow, that's amazing. It's good, that, isn't it? I suddenly thought then that uh, a strange quirk. I went to a West Ham charity match, and it was like a West Ham eleven. And Martin Peters played. This was in the mid nineties, and he was in midfield with uh, Mark Fowler. Oh wow! Tom how this never? I can't believe this hasn't come up. So how many years do they span together? I suppose Todd Carty probably goes back further than you think, though, because Todd Carty was Tucker Jenkins probably in the late seventies, wasn't he? <laughs> uh, right. Do you want? Um, oh, do you want an obscure rule obsession? Because we were talking about this, uh, the rules that you were into as a kid, like you can't score from a throw-in. And this one really, and I'm sure this would have been for Michael as well, this is from Jack Lloyd Weston. Hi, lads. After your recent discussion about notable rules of insignificance when growing up, I became slightly obsessed with keepers only having six seconds to release the ball after picking it up. Whilst watching matches, I would often count the seconds aloud. And we get outraged if we keep a hold on to the ball for even a second too long. 
Luckily, I grew out of that phase and I only count the seconds in my head now. <laughs> I used to be obsessed yes. with, the, with the, how long the keepers could hold the ball and how many steps they were allowed. This really resonates with me massively. Yeah. yeah, but it was one of those rules that you never really felt was enforced. I never don't remember a keeper ever being punished for holding the ball longer than six seconds. I saw a thing recently, uh, you guys might have seen it on Twitter, that's sort of related to this indirectly. It's from modern football, but there was a team, uh, I, I can't remember, in a foreign league, and they were trying to run down the clock and they had a corner in sort of injury time. So the player went to take the corner and he just refused to take the corner. He just stood there for ages and ages and ages until the ref came over, gave him a yellow card, and then he walked away and another player came, stood to take the corner, and then waited for ages and ages until the referee gave him another yellow. And they basically cycled through the team, everyone who wasn't on a yellow card, getting a yellow card to run the clock down. Oh, wow. Oh, so, I mean, it's the most incredible bit of shithousery I've ever seen on football. It's insane. It's so it's so good. It cuts to the yeah. manager. Um, I think it might have been a South African team. I'm sure listeners will correct me if not, but it cuts to the manager on the sideline and he looks so fucking smug. Like, he's so pleased with himself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but later in, the, later in the league, they had a huge spate of suspension. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we should finish with some sad music, Michael. This is from Simon Mustard. Dear Josh, Chris and Michael Mainly Michael <laughs> God, I must offer an apology Whilst listening to your show and making toast Josh offered his opinion That the 1966 World Cup Was overrated rubbish And everyone should get over it I enjoyed this And think this, this would become a long running thing I thought, thought I should fire over Some sort of ill-informed opinion That no one would care about What to choose though Well, there's only one choice I could make Peter Schmeichel gets lobbed a lot. <laughs> I fired this out over toast and thought nothing of it. Just a fairly low quality, but with some retrospectively baffling syntax, attempt at bantering with the podcast, nothing more, who cares? Well, things have taken a turn for the worse. I never meant for this to happen. An innocent email has unleashed the dogs of war. <laughs> Abuse coming in from Twitter from seemingly innocent Patreon subscribers from Sky Sports Montage, all piling onto a man who just wants to enjoy one of his childhood heroes. I never meant to unleash out. If I could create a time machine and turn back time and stop myself from sending that damned email, maybe I would. <laughs> if I could rein in the horde, I probably would. If I could delete every video of Peter Schmeichel being lobbed to stop this, I probably wouldn't have the time to do so because there's so much evidence to dispose of. Hold on a minute, you can't have your cake and eat it. (laughs) The time machine idea is frankly more viable. All I can do is apologise for ruining Michael's life. I'm sorry for the pain I've caused. I can only hope that eventually the mantle is passed on to a new controversial opinion. (laughs) Perhaps Peter Shilton was actually good at saving penalties. No, it just isn't the same when it's a lie. All I can do is say sorry. Yours in eternal shame and sorrow, S. Mustard. Oh, mate. I forgot how this all started. I mean, I'm I'm grateful for for Simon Mustard for apologising, but... The damage is done. That's like Tony Blair apologising for the Iraq War, mate. Like it's it... <laughs> he, he didn't do that. He, he very clearly hasn't done that, he, Michael. <laughs> Mr. Mustard wins that one. So there we go. Wow, what a sliding doors moment for this podcast, that email. Yeah, yeah. and for Peter Michael's reputation. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I can't think of anything else when I see him now. Um, if you want to get in touch about anything uh, raised in this podcast, this is how. Get in touch with the show. 
Email hello at quicklykevin.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at quicklykevin and sign up to the mailing list at quicklykevin.com. Okay, now we don't just get um, correspondence via email. We do now have the Quickly Kevin uh, online forum, which is by far the best place to chat about football on the internet because there's none of that new stuff ruining it. It's purely 90s. I'll just read you out some of the titles on it. Uh, Do you want a 14 message on your club's teams of the 90s? Yes, please. Forgotten favourite boots of the 90s, 27 messages. (laughs) 90s footballers, sons who are footballers. Do you want that one for this week? Shall we go through that on the show? Yeah, let's go for that. We mentioned that last week. Let's go for it. Did you know Paul Durkin's son, James Durkin, uh, is a referee? That's good, isn't it? Yeah. Lillian Turam's son, obviously, and um, Marcus uh, plays for Borussia Mönchengladbach. We have Frederico Chiesa plays for Juventus. What I like about all of these is they basically sound like regens. (laughs) Yes. Andre Dazelle, son of Jason, was sent off for Ipswich recently emil bohenan i absolutely love their names charlie sheringham obviously someone suggested casper schmeichel but i don't think that's good enough (laughs) this will blow your mind do you remember babetto's celebration in world cup 94 yeah the rocking of the baby yeah the baby yeah yeah yeah. that baby now plays for sporting lisbon (laughs) oh wow wow that's amazing god i feel old but i'd like to leave with my favorite name please welcome my favourite footballer of the present day, Colin Rosler. Uwe Rosler's son oh, Ros- is named yeah. Colin. And he's named <laughs> Colin. Colin? Oh, yeah, because of Colin Bell that used to play for Man City in the 70s. Wow. Thank you very much. Our forum is available for anyone who is a Patreon member. And Patreon members also get bonus episodes. Bonus episode this week. It's genuinely one of my favourite episodes we've ever recorded. I absolutely loved it. We welcomed back. I'm going to say it. Quickly, Kevin Royalty. If you're listening to the John Robinson episode, I'm sure you're aware of Ellis James. We went through our favourite clips of Des Lynham and tried to get to the bottom of what made him so great. Quickly, Kevin Royalty is here, Josh. Oh. Matt Ford. <laughs> <laughs> How are you, Ellis? I'm very good. How are you? Good, good. Have you ever been sat out? As joyful a task as what we've set you today. No, it did not feel like work, which also sounds uh, like cunningly like the autobiography title of the person we're discussing this evening. <laughs> so we're discussing, for me, certainly the most important television sport personality of my lifetime. I think he's probably the most important cultural figure since Chairman Mao. <laughs> he's, he's big. He's a big deal. Deadline. I mean, he cut. He cast a long shadow over nineties football, and indeed all sport, and indeed all of British culture, and probably beyond. Well, I've got a, I've got a few things I want to say straight off the bat. Okay, we'll settle down. As a teenager, when I first started reading about football in magazines like Four Four Two and When Saturday Comes in the newspapers, it was seemingly illegal to discuss. Des Lynham without making reference to him being unflappable and <laughs> and good in a crisis. And it was always that word. It was never calm or cool, calm and collected or any of the uh, any of the myriad of ways you could say unflappable. It had to be unflappable. Do you think do you think Steve Ryder was flappable? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
and do you know what? Do you know I, that's that's a very good point actually because I think that's quite unfair on Steve Ryder, <laughs> who I don't remember flapping. No, <laughs> I feel like Ray Stubbs would have flapped. But also, I don't remember turning on Sports Night and thinking, "Oh, it's bloody flappable old Ray Stubbs. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a right bloody." <laughs> It's going to be an evening of flapping with in, in the company of Ray Stubbs tonight. What a shame. My main memory of Ray Stubbs is um, they did a bit on Fantasy Football League, uh, which was so good, where they'd realised that when he said Peter and Love, he'd really emphasise it. So it was Peter and Love. And they said he sounded like Barry White. <laughs> and then later in the episode, they'd got Ray Stubbs to walk on and um, <laughs> do a kind of Barry White style impression, repeatedly saying Peter and Love. <laughs> Peter and Love. <laughs> We're talking and Love. The place for Coventry. It's Peter and <laughs> My memory of Ray Stubbs is that he looked so similar to my best friend from school. It was such fun watching telly with my best mate if Ray Stubbs was the presenter. Because then I would continually do what I thought were very authentic-looking double takes, as if to go, what? What? Hang on, what? I was in... Are you looking in the mirror? What's going on? I thought I wanted to tell you. What's going on? Great fun. But I, I think... Des, for some reason, it, it was it was impossible to discuss him without mentioning how unflappable he was. And I used to read this and harumph and roll my eyes and think, oh, God, see, yeah, yeah, I get it, I get it. He's a good presenter. As someone now whose job it is to do live radio, I am insanely impressed at how unflappable he was because he had a, a career that lasted decades. And there is no classic Des Lynham gaff. Now, we haven't chosen the uh, the classic clips purely, but I'd like to start with a clip that I absolutely love, which is um, the clip of Des Lynham uh, closing Italia 90. Where better place to start? It's where I was introduced to Des. I imagine it's where you guys were introduced to Des. And this is how Des Lynham decided to end Italia 90. Well, it's been a fascinating competition, apart from the final, probably. It's taken a month out of our lives, Actually, actually, it's probably added a month to our lives. It's been our privilege at the BBC to know you've watched it all with us. We think it's all over, and it is now. Except, of course, for one more time, it's Q Luciano.
that was Ellis James uh, joining us to talk about Des Lynham and um, that is available if you sign up as an XJ8 member on Patreon and you can do that by going to patreon.com forward slash quickly Kevin. Now you don't get Ellis James without John Robbins and podcasts these days so we were joined by uh, quickly Kevin debutante John Robbins Liverpool fan. We don't want to hear about the good Liverpool players. Here is his worst Liverpool eleven of the 90s. Our guest today is a stand-up comedian and our first ever winner of the Perrier Award. A Queen fan, a pub fan and podcast royalty. With co-host Ellis James, he hosts the only podcast with more obsessive listeners than us, the Ellis James and John Robbins Show. Hello, it's John Robbins. Hello to you. That's very kind of you. I was waiting for the butt. No. Uh, or the no, however. No. Or the, the some asterisk somewhere along the right way. But that was very kind of you. No, no. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you on. Um, we, we will be coming to uh, Liverpool, but we'd like to open, obviously, every time by asking, um, have you met a 90s footballer? So I have uh, I don't remember his name, and even if I did, I guarantee none of you would ever have heard of him. Yeah. Uh, so when I was at school, I was a very, very poor footballer because I just was sort of the wrong build. I was about like average height, but just had very long legs and arms and big flapping feet. Mm. And a sort of a problem I had with the way football is taught at schools unlike sort of rugby or cricket, they never actually teach you how to kick a ball. (laughs) So with cricket, which I went on to be kind of be my sport to play, Mm. they teach you, you you get side on, you get your foot to the pitch of the ball, how to play off the back foot, how to play off the front foot. But in football, there was a lot of playing and never any training. (laughs) It's it's kind of been our problem since 1966 in a way. So you, I was in this ludicrous situation of being really bad at football, having played it twice a week at school for four years, but not really feeling I could say to the teacher, sir, how do you kick a football? <laughs> and I mean, I was so bad when I, I used to play for a club called Thornbury Falcons when I was about Ooh. 10. And I arrived one week and everyone else in the team was chanting sub Robins. <laughs> Which was like, you know, a sort of childhood defining humiliation. That's be- that's become a, a uh, adjective in Edinburgh reviews now for bad comics. <laughs> try an emotional ending that doesn't work. Um, but to his credit, the the guy who was like our coach picked me and put me as striker for that game, oh, wow. which was. I always remember that. And I, mm. even as a sort of nine-year-old, remember thinking, this guy's a great man manager. <laughs> um, but, I mean, it was a complete disaster. It had to take me at half time. It was, all, it was awful. It was really, really awful. He made awful. his point. But, uh, but then I discovered through chance that I was a really good goal, well, a good goalkeeper. And mm. suddenly I, ha- I had like a non-embarrassing part to play in school football. Um, Because I had very good reactions. My long arms and long legs suddenly were quite helpful. Yeah. But I was in the very frustrating position of being the second best goalkeeper in the school. Oh, Oh, no. David Rice was, he was, imagine a 10-year-old David Seaman. (laughs) 
he, and he had he had proper goalkeeping gloves. Oh. The um the ones with the like smooth foam that you got wet, not the ones I had with the like little dot. Sort of, <laughs> yes. really cheap. The ones, ones you get from a petrol station. Yeah, the the ones that you imagine were the first sort of style gloves ever worn by goalkeepers. <laughs> but we went to me and him went to a goalkeeping school for a week when oh, I would wow. have been about 10 or 11. The guy who coached us, rumor had it he was fourth reserve keeper for Manchester United <laughs> and had been on the books at Bristol City. But I'm Michael's I, ears have pricked up to uh, do some Wikipediaing straight away. Well, I have Googled myself numb trying to find the name of a player who was fourth reserve keeper for Man United and also associated with either Bristol City or Bristol Rovers. I yeah. can't find it, but he would have been a 90s footballer. That is one for, uh, um, if anyone can find out, it is our listeners on that one. So do, do email in. Um, so, John, also, we need to ask you about Queen. Well, we don't need to, but I'd like to. No um, problem. Yeah, because you're... I recorded a, huge... a three-and-a-half-hour Queen podcast last night about the first half of Sheer Heart Attack. The third <laughs> <laughs> and how much of that's going to end up on the cutting room floor? Does it go out word for word? Not enough. It, that that three-and-a-half hours will edit down to a tight three hours, 20 minutes, I would imagine. <laughs> Were Queen big football fans at all? Was there any kind of relationship between Queen and football? Oh, they played in more stadiums than Manchester United. Oh, lovely stuff. Um, <laughs> did Man U play in Sun City? <laughs> Too controversial. How's that? What's that? Tw- 14 minutes till Josh mentioned Sun City. Doesn't, doesn't mention Rod Stewart playing Sun City. Doesn't men- mention Elton John playing Sun City. No. Or Dame Terry Takanawa. No, I haven't. We had yeah, yeah, where's your well. beef with Dame Kerry Takanawa? Every time I mention Queen, Sun City. Um, they, uh, there's a famous photo of them with Maradona. Yes. Uh, when they played in Argentina. Uh, I don't think they were huge football fans, but they certainly provided the soundtrack to more football matches than any other band. And they consciously, in the late 70s, start after sort of because of the way Freddie interacted with the crowd, a lot of call and response going on and the crowd singing back, you know, parts of the songs to them. They Ooh. consciously wrote anthems that could be sung by crowds because oh, they're, really? it's a bit like when a comedian goes to start playing, you know, 8,000 seat arenas, their material changes because you have to adapt it to fit that bigger room. Ooh. Queen had to start writing songs for 300,000 fans, half a million fans in some cases in South America. So you couldn't, you know, like... Yeah. Well, so was We Are The Champions, was that... Because that was... Play, when Plymouth beat... Um, you don't need telling this, but when Plymouth <laughs> beat Darlington in the playoff final in 1996 at Wembley, yeah, I remember them playing that as they got the... Tra- like, as they were doing that around the little board on this pitch dancing thing. I remember singing along to that. Was that written for those kind of occasions? Not yeah. that occasion particularly, but... Well, I'm not sure Argyle were in the forefront of um, <laughs> Queen's mind. Um, but they. it was definitely, and we will rock you, it was definitely written with with the audience in mind and big audiences at that. And on, on every album from like... 77 onwards there is a big like stadium track so if you think of like Radio Gaga with the claps and um, uh, you know like One Vision and that sort of thing so definitely I'm not sure they would have predicted that 
today still more than any other band queen are what's played at big sporting events even watching the the cricket without an audience without a crowd they're still playing like under pressure and hammer to falls this kind of getting rel- not deep cuts but they're getting to sort of slightly lesser known hits yeah but in, in an empty stadium when someone's when someone's got like four runs to make off the final ball and they're playing under pressure i would think you go come on mate leave it out <laughs> didn't roger taylor try and buy man U or something have i made that up I have very, very vague memories of this, but um, Google and uh, a refreshingly retro BBC website news story where 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 the print's all far too small. Um, yeah, he well, no, he he put up ten grand for you know when there was the big um, split with the glaziers. Yeah, he he gave ten grand towards the supporters' uh, trust. Oh, um, can I ask you about Diego Maradona meeting Queen? These mm. are like some of the eighties most notorious cocaine enthusiasts. What kind on, on what kind of circumstances did they meet? Have you got any detail to offer on what they were doing? Um, I would imagine it would have been promotion for their uh, Argentinian tour dates because when when Queen went to South America. It was a huge deal because um, no massive bands had really done what they were doing. And what's that? What's that? Um, you know, the film Lost in La Mancha about the making of. It's about his attempt to make Don Quixote, and it's all about how they were sort of lugging camera equipment through jungle, and it just became completely impossible. Well, I think Queen were had a similar sort of thing the first time they went to South America. It was uncharted territory and they were sort of turning up at huge arenas with trucks and being sort of having to bribe senior officials who said, oh, have you got this permit that we've just invented? And they were sort of suitcases of cash going around and um, lighting rigs getting stuck in mud and you know crazy sort of stuff like that so I would imagine they put, sort of rolled out the red carpet to advertise them and that's um, that's when Maradona but it was it was at the Estadio Velez Sarsfeld in Buenos Aires yeah 300,000 people which is the largest crowd in the history of Argentina wow. um, amazing oh here we go Freddie Mercury first met Diego Maradona at a party in Castellar outside Buenos Aires and invited him to appear on stage during Queen's final show. Maradona accepted readily. Uh, I, I think the the key phrase in that fact is met him at a party. Oh, to be a fly on the wall of that party. Um, so Freddie could not help but be amused by the young soccer star. To some extent, he could identify with him. They shared modest stature and unquenchable thirst for success. Maradona duly appeared to ecstatic applause, whereupon the footballer peeled off his number 10 shirt and swapped it for the Rockstars T-shirt. He then introduced another one, Bites of the Dust, and retreated as Queen tore into one of Argentina's all-time favourite rock numbers. There we go. There we and there's go. photos of Freddie wearing the uh, blue and white striped number 10 shirt. Oh, sensational. Now, let's, let's get on to Liverpool, Robbins. Now, John, you're... You're from Bristol, but mm. like, this is I, is this a pattern? I don't know if this is a pattern, but like the four legendary early noughties Bristol acts, three of them, Russell Howard, Mark Holver and John Robbins, support Liverpool. 
Is that is that coincidence? Why why are Liverpool so big in Bristol? Well, I would say it's an interesting conversation to have because I got into an argument once with Matt Ford about this, who's very much of the Frank Skinner school that at, at six years old you get a map and a ruler and work out work out which club's closest and support them for the rest of your life. That that system has its flaws when you actually find out where someone was born and people with that attitude tend to avoid quite a few clubs quite close to their house to go for the <laughs> yeah. sort of the main one. Well, that's fair enough. You know, I totally agree with that. But if you were, I wasn't, I wasn't born in Bristol. I didn't grow up in Bristol. I was about 10 miles out of Bristol. So I was brought up in Avon, yes. uh, now South Gloucestershire. So if you're also, my dad wasn't around. So mm. there were no figures in my life who liked football. I never got taken to football. Um, I just saw it on the telly. But if you're seven, eight years old, you have to have a team. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's non-negotiable. So my friends at school, one supported Aston Villa, one supported Spurs, one supported Man United. And I remember watching John Barnes in that grey, silver, candy away kit. It probably would have been crown paints and I've and I've got a false memory of it. But... I just remember watching him and thinking I it was maybe the first football game I ever saw on telly and just thinking he doesn't look like any of the football I've played at school. <laughs> he does. That's not what's what is that? The way he could, the way that it was like the bottom half of his body was doing something entirely different from the top half yes. of his body. <laughs> he was so like chest out, quite stocky and yet, Something else. It was like a sort of swan. Something else was happening with the ball. I don't he know was, if been he was a bit a like Riverdance, wasn't he? In that <laughs> sense of the, the stationary top half. And, and the... I, I just remember being captivated by him, but also by the shirt. And then when I started, when I started playing in goal and realizing I was actually quite good at something, Bruce Grobelar just became my absolute hero. And I had posters of Bruce Grobelar all over my bedroom. No one, unfortunately, had had the conversation with me that I needed to get a map and a ruler and work out that technically Bristol Rovers was the closest ground to my house. Yeah. Um, And Bristol City was an extra, you know, 2.6 miles away. So I could also have that as an option. But I had no connection to Bristol. I probably hadn't even been into Bristol at that age. So, you know, it's completely arbitrary. I'm not denying that. I've got no links to Liverpool. Um, Do you know what? I admire that because often people will clutch at a reason. Do you know what I mean? Like a kind of oh no a vague reason, reason. At all. total I, coincidence. I could have I could have been watching Neville Southall in goal. I could have been watching, um, you know, and I could have been watching Stuart Pearce and become a Forest fan. There's no mm. reason for it. it. Just it just happens. And by the time you're ten and you're yeah. a Liverpool fan and you've got pictures of the team all over your room, that's is done. And also, they, I mean, they, they didn't win the league again after I started supporting them until this year. <laughs> so, I, yeah, in many quite, ways, it was wasn't a bad quite decision. The, yeah, it wasn't quite the glory hunter. Did, did you get a, because you're West Ham, Chris, did you get a, a ruler out? Did you? No, it's, I guess John's kind of touched on that, but it's kind of family links. Your family, like, it just happened that I was bought the closest ground was West Ham, but it's also family, family linkage, like uncles and your dad going, this is your team. 
that's when your family kind of centered around an area. It sounds like to you, John, it was just like you just happened to grow up in that area. No massive links to Bristol. Well, I had no no um, family members were into football at all on either side. None of my mum's friends were into football. They were into rugby and like running. Um, <laughs> and I never really, I, I never we got my head around. Were a huge fan of, of Seb Coe? <laughs> well, that was it. So it, when we went to sort of coffee with mum's friends on a Sunday, the only sport that would be on would be like long distance running, which as a kid, you're thinking, Jesus, what is this? <laughs> that I mean, versus who... John, uh, John Barnes in a crown paint shirt. There's, <laughs> yeah. no, there's no choice to be made. So it was sort of later in life that I realised I'd crossed some, you know, invisible line and broken some unwritten rule by not just supporting the team closest to me. Well, do you find it a problem, Michael? Do you? Because, Michael, you're Isle of Wight, so you... Ruler would be what Portsmouth. Uh, yeah, technically Portsmouth. I mean, it's it's. I've done this of the ruler thing because, um, obviously, growing up in the nineties, supporting Manchester United, I'm just labelled as a glory hunter. But it's it's geographically impossible to be born in an hospital further away from Old Trafford than I was born. If you're born in England, it's literally <laughs> the most southern and furthest hospital. Superb. Fact. Um, but similarly, I didn't have any sort of you know father figure, uncle, older brother to say this is your team. It was just my under nines manager supported Manchester United and I wanted to get picked as first choice right back. And I thought there's a better chance if I like the team that he likes. And I talk about Clayton Blackmore and Mark Hughes. Oh, so you were like when David Mellor supported Chelsea because John Major did and he wanted to be in the cabinet. Just currying favour, yeah. <laughs> but, but also like, I, I supported, when I got into cricket, I supported Lancashire because Neil Fairbrother played for Lancashire and I mm. loved Neil Fairbrother as a batsman. Yeah, people don't get quite so arsy about it when it's other sports. No, because it it it, and especially in individual sport, I don't. I'm not obsessed with Ronnie O'Sullivan because he was born closest to me. <laughs> I'm obsessed with him because he's given me tw- thirty years nearly of the most intense emotion I've ever experienced in my life. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd be a Judd Trump fan. But I hate Judd Trump. His stupid shoes, and I want him to lose all the time. <laughs> Andy Hicks. Do you remember Andy Hicks? Yeah, I remember the, Andy Hicks. He was the West Country snooker player who I he had was. a kind of attempted affinity with due to being born in the West Country. Difficult player to like Hicks. <laughs> very, li- very little to cling on to. Yeah. There. Who was the bigger guy snooker player in the 90s? Bit Tony something. He played really a Drago. 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 He, he was a great player. He's, he's from Malta. 90s. <laughs> yeah. He, he's, he, he holds the record for the fastest ever century, I think. He was a really exciting player. Oh, incredible to watch Drago. I mean, if if Jimmy White was the whirlwind, Drago was like just a really bad hurricane that is <laughs> is actually is actually threatening southern states. <laughs> so what we've done, John, is we we thought we've done this with Alex Brooker with Arsenal and yeah. we did it with Tom Davis with West Ham. We feel with the big teams everyone knows the story of the 90s. So we thought it'd be nice to choose your worst team, uh, your worst Liverpool team. Yeah, how have you interpreted that? Well, the first thing I think you have to differentiate between is bad signings and bad players. Mm. Because yes. Liverpool have signed an awful lot of good players who just haven't worked out there. And so are you saying they were bad at Liverpool or they were just plain bad? Yeah. I've erred on the side of just plain bad 
because yeah. I th- I think it would be quite harsh on say like Paul Ince is a really good example. Yeah, didn't really work out at Liverpool, but it would be hard to call him a bad like one of the worst yeah. ever Liverpool players, and he fell Take out massively. Face. Yeah, he fell out massively with with Houllier and um, yeah. Phil Thompson, and it <laughs> one of the most eviscerating post-leaving interviews where he said if he'd been younger, he'd have punched Gerard Houllier in the face. <laughs> and he said, I hope he goes down and I hope he takes Phil Thompson with him. Oh, wow. <laughs> like insane. Um, so I've erred on the side of um, just people who are genuinely bad players. And the only other criteria is they have to have made a first-team appearance. They can't just have been bought and not done anything and go... But it's it's a fascinating challenge because some of it's quite tough to pick, mm. um, and there's a lot of discussion points. Well, should we should we start from the goalkeeper then? Yeah, well, this is probably the most difficult position to pick because Liverpool have actually done pretty well with goalkeepers over the past thirty years, really. Mm. And also with goalkeepers, it's very hard to pick a like a, a second keeper who maybe covers for someone for illness or injury. And then sort of doesn't really kick on because they were never going to. Yeah. So with with Liverpool, it's really between Sander Westerveld and David James. And I don't think you can pick Sander Westerveld in your worst ever eleven because he won the treble. Yes. He played in every final. And I know that's not that wasn't the nineties, but it was two thousand two thousand one, wasn't it? Two thousand. Two thousand, two thousand one. Yeah, got terrible knowledge on that. But yeah, it's a great pub quiz question. Which Liverpool goalkeeper played in every final of the treble winning season? Because how many people remember Sander Westerveld? Yeah. Um, so so you're going with David I'm James? I'm going with David James. And and my hand has been forced, really, because there's not a huge amount to pick for. It's James or Grobelar, I suppose, isn't it? And you're not, and you, you not love Gr- Bruce it's Grobelar. Not Gro- it's not Grobelar, mate. I mean, the, ni- <laughs> the 90s didn't necessarily, in a reputational sense, see the best of Bruce Grobelard. But... <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't his best decade. But, I, you know, Calamity James, he was called yeah. that for a reason. He, he, was, he was a decent keeper who just failed at sort of crisis moments. He was called Calamity James. He also had the nickname The Vampire because he was scared of crosses, allegedly. He, I remember seeing him when he was playing for Watford at Plymouth and he was... There was like this kind of hype around him. Like, you know, when you see like like a band just before they're about to break. I remember he was considered like the next big thing. And then he signed for Liverpool. And he just, he was one of those people that never quite, he was good, but you never quite trusted, did you? Well, he was, he was an England keeper, you know. Yeah, I know. He's not an idiot, but but he was sort of on the, he was sort of one of the Spice Boys. Yeah. And... I just, I mean, I would be, if anyone fervently disagrees with the choice of James for worst Liverpool 90s keeper, I'd like to know who else you're picking. I mean, 214 appearances for Liverpool. It's it's hard to find bad players who played a lot for Liverpool. Yeah. Um, we might come to later, but I think it's got to be. Yeah, yeah. I feel- met I met David James uh, a few weeks ago. I've actually got a f- couple of fresh David James stories for you. Oh, yeah. So I was, I was chatting to him. He used to play for West Ham, so I was chatting to him about West Ham. And um, whenever we would talk about some aspect of his career, he would honestly pause for 60 seconds. And say, oh, he'd say, oh, let me think about that. 
Yes, we won that 1-0 and the goal scorers were heaped. But every game you mentioned, he wanted to tell you that he knew the exact score oh, and the wow. exact goal scorer. He's, he's said in an interview that he is a sociopath, that he's yes, worked out Scott. that he himself yes, is a sociopath. Yes. I'm sure I read that. That <laughs> might need checking, Michael, for legal <laughs> before we go out. But I'm sure I read that. My he other... said. He said when he was a kid, he got a copy of Autocar and memorized around, like around the late eighties, all the naught to sixty speeds of all the most popular cars in the country. John, he's a man after your own heart. <laughs> <laughs> he's. <laughs> <laughs> He's also great. He's a painter and does an awful yeah. lot of charity yeah. work. He, I think he's an interesting man. He, and he had a period when he his his form suffered because he got addicted to computer games. Yeah, which at the time, it, I think he was sort of derided a bit for that. But now that's a a more sort of commonly accepted problem because people people totally. that's more familiar to people now. He was mm. one of those first people that had, in a way. Like people who are addicted to their mobile phone, like we all are, yeah. I suppose. He was one of the first people. My wife's friend, uh, their brother. What what a link! Uh, he worked for the environmental car company that David James uh, was getting a car from. Like so, he rented. And David James would occasionally phone up this company and say, um, when he was say to reception, "Hi, it's David James, the goalkeeper." Oh. <laughs> I find hugely endearing. I, I bet he's a really, really nice guy. Yeah. yeah I'd love he, to meet him. Is he uh, huge, Chris? Yes, he's absolutely massive, as you'd su- suspect. But also, like, he dresses really weird. I don't know if you've seen any pictures of him recently, but he dresses like a 13-year-old, like really colourful shirts and big, massive trainers. Like, you think he would dress a bit more like his age. He had a he had a modelling contract with Armani, I think. Yeah, yeah did, that was the cause he? of the white suits, allegedly. I also found out recently that uh, he refused to do interviews with Sky Sports for about nine months because his satellite had broken at home and they were refusing to fix it within like a <laughs> few weeks. So he, he just al- refused Sky Sports until they fixed the satellite. He also was a smoker when he played, which oh, I love. It? I love smoking footballers. <laughs> yeah. like, and a 20 a day, an actual proper smoker. Wow. And I think he gave up um, New Year's Eve of Millennium. Wow. wow. I, I, I love any elite sportsman or sportswomen that smoke. Yeah. <laughs> well, this brings us on to your next choice. Well, well can back. I just say the most surprising sport, smoking sports person uh, during their sporting career, Tiger Tim Henman. Really? Tiger like, Tim, Tiger po- Tim posh Henman. Posh, though, isn't it? Posh. Yeah. Coughing yeah, his way to the quarterfinals. <laughs> I didn't know Tiger Tim smoked fags. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Henman Hill is actually just loads of fag buds piled up and turfed over. <laughs> are, there, are there any other sporting smokers that you wouldn't expect? Um, well, obviously, um, Jürgen Klopp, I was told recently, runs the reason he runs off at half time is to have a fag before <laughs> doing his team That's, talk. I, I, I would have full sex with Jürgen Klopp. <laughs> I, I, every single fact I hear about him. There's just every single one you go, yes. <laughs> I just don't know what... I've never, ever heard a fact about him that didn't make me go, God, I bet he's a good laugh. <laughs> he is, I'd say, my favourite ever person in sport by a distance. <laughs> I And I'd put him up there with, if someone said, who would you like to meet? It would be him or Sir Paul McCartney. That would be it. Mate, <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Just hang around Anfield at half time. He'll be popping out for his fag. Have, just have a chat. Paul McCartney. 
what has he done in the last 45 years? Absolute dross. <laughs> we're talking yeah. of absolute dross. Uh, well, hang on. We're talking to celebrity smokers. Oh, our yeah. left back, Julian Dix, one of the most noted West Ham smokers of the 90s. Oh, and he's made his way into your worst 11. Yeah, Julian Dix uh, at left back. Um, I mean, the shadow of Sunes looms very large in this 11. <laughs> I don't think... Is, can you think of an occasion in history when more damage has been done to one club by one manager in such a short space of time? There was a vote for um, the worst manager of all time on um, uh, sort of a Liverpool fan forum. Sunes only got 6% of the vote. I could not believe it. He, uh, he, he, he basically deconstructed a pretty decent team. He deconstructed 30 years of success, really. Uh, and I, there's a very good interview with Sunes, who is he's, who is eloquent and honest about yeah. it, on um, Sky Sports, like a proper forty minute. What, mm. what the hell happened at Liverpool? <laughs> and he said the problem was a he was way too inexperienced, but he was then he was managing people he'd played with. He was coming into the dressing room, having to tell them they couldn't get pissed on the on the coach and they couldn't go out for fish and chips. And they're looking at him going, but, but you, you drank with us. It was like literally four years ago that we were shit-faced and you're now telling me. And, and stuff like he was in charge of the contract negotiations. Yeah. So he was having to say to Ian Rush, this new guy coming in is going to be on, you know, five grand a week more than you or, or whatever it was. And, he'd be, and Ian Rush would be like, but I'm Ian Rush and you're Graham Sooness and you're my <laughs> and you're what do you mean you're paying this guy no one's heard of more than me? So he was in an impossible yeah. situation that he should never have he should never have put himself into. But it's, it was it was a car crash. It took so long to recover from. It's an impossible time. There's it's such a tran- like transitional period. You've got all that old guard. And like you say, he's friends with them. But then Robbie Fowler, Stephen Manham, all these young players coming in. And he's got to manage the kind of like that old guard disappearing when he's their mate. It's, it's, it's a tough gig for anyone. But, you know, especially someone like Sunes, who, let's face it, was a bit mad. And then he sold his story yeah, to the Sun. Two years just, in, that's just a disaster. And, and, it, and the story came out three years after Hillsborough. Yeah, oh, the day. to the Jeez. day. And he, he said of um, Julian Dix, and in fairness, Julian Dix played very well at West Ham, suited their style, that's all I'll say. Uh, he, he said, of, this is Graham Souness on Julian Dix, one of the best players I've ever worked with. <laughs> that's, that's coming from Graham Souness. Who played for Liverpool in the 80s. There's a photo of him with Julian Dix, and it's like, oh, there's a photo of a fan with Graham Sunas. <laughs> oh, that's their new signing. And, and, it, hmm. and, and Julian Dix had a tricky time after he um, retired from football, it's fair to say, uh, with sort of personal relationships and businesses and stuff. His, his kennels went bust. Let's just get it out there. <laughs> Tell it like got it beat is. around the bush. <laughs> um, he he became a pro golfer. 
Did you know yeah. that? Oh, yeah. He had a horrible, I think his first ever pro golf tournament, he had a horrific score. It was yeah, the, he, one he of the worst. he wasn't very good at golf. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was an enormous uh, short, short-sighted move on, on his part because he, he was, wasn't good at golf. <laughs> Do you like him, Skull? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's a big difference between West Ham and, uh, and Liverpool. But it's interesting because Graham Sooner signed Julian Dix at the same time as Neil Ruddock. It, I think it's so clear to me, he was trying to sign players in his own image psychopaths yeah. who would just go around yeah. and just be hard men. That's the kind of, he was trying to build Liverpool in, in his image. But clearly, you know, Julian Dix wasn't suited to a big club. I think there's a story that um, Ronnie Moran run training at Liverpool, very technical, you know, like lots of running. Julian Dix himself said he was used to turning up at training and smashing a ball around for half hour. That was his training. And he infamously didn't want to do what he was told. And I think him and Ronnie Moran were having big rows every day. He said, like, when he was just kicking the ball around, Ronnie Moran said, give the ball back. And, he, and Julian Dix would say, piss off. This is Liverpool. <laughs> this is Liverpool. You know, you've, what, you've just you dominated a whole continent just a few years before. And here's Julian Dix turning up, telling the coaching staff to piss off. So interesting. But again, I guess the folly of Sooness. Yeah. That's what he represents. There's a lot of the folly of Sooness here, John. Who's your, who, your right back? Would you describe him as the folly of Sooness as well? Torben Peachnik. <laughs> I've never man, heard of him. Well, he's got oh, no baby. photo on the Liverpool website. <laughs> it's just a question mark in a black space. Um, appalling Sooness signing. 500 grand in 1992. Um, he, he is sort of... I'm not going to pretend I have a encyclopedic knowledge of all of these slightly obscure players but he is like amongst Liverpool fans one of the cult bad players yeah um 24 games for Liverpool won eight drawn five lost 11 he's just just... one of those people that represents that kind of land grab for kind of Scandinavians in the early 90s after a few like Schmeichel was good and like Anders Limpar and stuff I vaguely remember him. Also, Liverpool had a habit of signing people off the back of good international performances at tournaments. Yeah, always and, a mistake. And he he was uh, in the Denmark's victorious Euro 92 squad. Yeah. Um, but he, I think they did a, a similar thing when Julier came in and suddenly was buying lots and lots of French players. And it's a bit like um, Suna sort of trying to, like you said, bring in these hard men. Yeah. It never really works when someone is clearly buying players to a theme. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Like as if they're sort of putting together a band. <laughs> and I think Veng- Wenger is an example of someone who was very good and quite obviously knew the foreign game much better when he came and, and, and bought a, bit more cannily and and had more of a system that he was bringing in <laughs> because f- French is not a system. <laughs> it's, it's a way it's, of life. It's a, it's a nationality, isn't it? And Scandinavian isn't really a, a system either. <laughs> There's this kind of, I wonder like, because obviously now if Liverpool bought a player from uh, Denmark, they'd have watched 400 videos of him They'd have had all these stats. They'd have, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You do, and then you hear this, like those extreme stories from the nineties of like Ron Atkinson watching a video of someone's best bits and signing them. But I wonder what amount of research was going in at Liverpool in the early nineties to the signing of Torben Picnic. I've got a, I've got a feeling that 
we're going to come to someone in midfield who Suna signed in pretty much instead of Cantona. Oh, okay. Well, we'll come to, we'll come to that. So I think it's a mixture of like recommendations. And I wonder to what extent, you know, the, you know, the um, phrase failing up. Yeah. Where people get promoted through companies because departments just don't want to work with them. So they give them a good <laughs> reference and they just get rid of them and they end up being like quite high up. I wondered to what extent that was happening in a, quite a lot of 90s foreign imports, especially the, the mistakes Sunas made with people going, he's, he's sort of bought the story that this guy is any good. <laughs> so we can, because it's in your interest. If someone's crap, you want to sell them for as much as you can. Yeah. You don't, you don't say, hi, Graham, have you heard of Torben Peachnik? He's complete <laughs> rubbish. Do you, do you want him for 500 grand? <laughs> That's big money in the early nineties. Last yeah, one Torben uh, pic- picnic. His la- well, he's made his debut against Aston Villa away, lost four two, and that's the game in which Ronnie Rosenthal misses that open goal with the most oh. famous open goal. And then he, and then the end of his Liverpool career. His last game comes at St James's Park against Newcastle in November ninety three. Andy Cole scores a hat trick in the first thirty minutes. Torben subbed off at half time. Soon as oh. has seen enough, <laughs> they lose three. Oh. What a cloud to end under. There's no yeah. coming back from that. There's a kind, it's very rarely happens that a player is like found out, not found out, but like their last game is like a complete disaster and they're kind of then removed from the, from the narrative of the club. Well, um, a good example of that would be Carrius in goal for Liverpool. Yeah. yeah. Who I feel a lot of sympathy for. That is, he, how do you live was, with that? He was concussed. <laughs> <laughs> and and it, if that happened now, he would, with VAR, and uh, concussion rules, he would he would not have continued yeah. in that game. So who are your centre-backs, John, to complete uh, this wonderful defence? So th- this is a player, I have to admit, I was not overly familiar with, uh, Bjorn Torre Kvarma. <laughs> yeah, I remember him vaguely uh, coming. Yeah. A lot of a lot of um, competition for this space. In, in terms of, like, the history of bad Liverpool players, this should have been Paul Koncheski. But <laughs> yeah. he's... He doesn't fit within the 90s remit enough. It could, there is an argument because I mean, um, Bjorn Torre Kvarma, uh, he played um, 45 league games for Liverpool, 54 games in total, which is enough. You know, that's an established player yeah. in that, that season. But Phil Babb could have had a look in. Oh, yeah. yeah. If you're talking about like a proper regular first 11 starter, but it, I, I think it would be hard, hard on him to call him a you know their worst player. I, 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 I think Phil Babb, I might be wrong on this, was another one of those. I think he played very well for Ireland in the World Cup in 1994. I think he was another one of those ones which Liverpool signed because he'd had a good international tournament. Mm. But I might be wrong on that. Well, K- Kavama um, played. Uh, he's got a win percentage of 51 percent. Uh, 128 drawn 12 lost 14 and did start quite well but then I, I think his embar- his performances became quite embarrassing uh, towards the end of 97 98 <laughs> yeah and also when he came to England he said he like he didn't realize he signed in January 97 the first half of the season he didn't realize how important heading was in England and he said he wasn't very good at it so instead of taking a holiday that summer he said he just practiced headers all summer <laughs> imagine could that could he have not taken a ball on holiday <laughs> 
<laughs> if you spent a summer practicing headers, how good would you be at the end of it? He was two. He was two inches shorter when he returned <laughs> from preseason training. He also got um, sort of singled out by Roy Evans for criticism after quite an embarrassing performance, which I think is is. I think if you've had a nightmare. You you sort of want criticism when you're doing okay or doing quite well, mm. in, even. Um, but if you've got the double blow, um, I, I I don't know of many. I always think the criticism of a player in a press conference. I know it's a very much a sign that Jose Mourinho is running out of time at a club when he does it. But like, it always feels like they'll go, "Oh, is that man- mind games from the manager to get more out of them?" I've never really seen it turn a player around to be publicly criticised. By their boss. Oh, well, well, Ginola maybe? Didn't Ginola get criticised oh, by John Gregory for being a bit fat? He scored a goal and whipped his shirt off. I don't his... know. I, don't, I, I just know that it would destroy me and I'd never <laughs> be able to return to training were it to happen to me. If after if after an episode of Quickly Kevin, you two came out and said Public how bad statement. I'd been on it, I don't think I'd be able to return for the following week full of... I don't think I'd be pumped up more... <laughs> worried about everything I said being shit. <laughs> uh, John, you're on the centre-back. Uh, it's Nicky Tanner, Bristol boy. Oh. Um, who played for Mangotsfield United uh, and Bristol Rovers. Um, but Mangotsfield is where one of my best friend's entire family comes from Mangotsfield. So it's kind of bizarre that someone in the Liverpool squad comes from Mangotsfield. <laughs> or played How did he there. end up at Liverpool? Uh, he was he was bought from Rovers in 1988, oh. and so Liverpool really it's still at the peak of their powers. God, um, he must have felt like that. Must feel at that moment, 1988, when Liverpool are the, the best team kind of for the last 20 years. You're signed by them from Bristol Rovers. It must just feel like this is it. I'm amazing. Well, Dalglish didn't use him that much, and it wasn't until Souness took over that he started to utilise him more, which must be quite an odd feeling for a player. The person who's in charge when you've been bought isn't using you. The the turmoil, like Dalglish left, obviously. They they had Hillsborough, and then there was that game against Arsenal where they lost the league in the last minute, and then Dalglish leaves, and all the players are getting old, and you go... As much as Souness was bad, it is, it's, it's almost a much worse situation than, say, David Moyes was thrown into. Yeah. Not at West Ham, obviously. That's a terrible situation. But at Man U, <laughs> after Alex Ferguson, it was almost like it did feel like almost untenable. Oh, absolutely. I, I don't know what manager you could have brought in because it's a bit like, you know, Ferguson's ability to spot the end of an era two years in advance. Yeah, which is so rare in any sport. To yeah, that, that constant thinking ahead and and being willing to take the hit of getting rid of who are currently some of your best players. Yeah, because you know that you're sort of it's like five minutes before midnight. You've you've you know you're going to lose a couple of months of them at their best. Yeah, but the cost of the couple of months after them at their best or the season after them at their mm. best is just too much. And I think when when Dalglish left, they were coming towards the end of that that sort of generation of players. Yeah. But then it's just a shame that the you know the Spice Boys were the answer to that. 
but it just never quite turned into consistency. How, how do you feel about trophies? the concept of the Spice Boys? Do you feel anger at them? Do you romanticise them as as great lads? I think Steve McManaman is one of the greatest ever footballers this country wonderful. has ever produced. And it's a sort of a shame that he he left when he did because he was at the absolute, he was so good. Yeah. I, I used to look, they scored a goal against Celtic, which I still watch on YouTube. It, it, it's one of those great, uh, you can tell I don't know how to kick a football. It's one of those great <laughs> ones that goes out and then comes back in. Um, <laughs> but it, it goes around a defender and then inside the post. So it, when it starts off, it's not on target. <laughs> it just, it's great. <laughs> But you, I, I, they just got caught. They were the first generation of su- like superstar, as in our modern day version yeah. of a superstar players, like celebrity players, in a way that you know Ian Rush, well, they were still drinking in the pub. Yeah, they he wasn't still... drinking in the nightclub no. in no, London. If, <laughs> no, if you if Ian Rush walked into a, a pub, someone would say, "All right, Ian, can I get you a pint?" Whereas if if sort of um, Robbie Fowler walked into a pub or a club, you know, they were the first generation where all hell would break loose, I yeah. guess. <laughs> and that I, must be both tantalizing and difficult to deal with as a yeah as a as a, a young man. I, I, I mean, to the to this day, thank God he invested in so much property. <laughs> <laughs> so let's have a look at your midfield. Where do you want to start, midfield-wise? Well, maybe start with the, the trickiest call, which was Nigel Clough. Yeah. Because he, he was you know technically a striker, but played... I guess this was part of his failure, was he was sort of a holding striker. And he was... He came in with so much expectation. I remember, like, when I was... A, like, just like when I got into football after the 1990 World Cup, it felt like Nigel Clough was like the next. I I remember him being like the next Gaza. I might have got that. That's <laughs> how it. That was that not like, surely. But I remember him. Am I am I making this up, Michael? Well, I, also, think? it's 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 important to say he's not a terrible player. No, not at all. He, yes. He's a really good footballer. Yeah, I think I, when he when he came to Liverpool, he must have had a very stressful time at Forest, being the son of a manager who was problematic <laughs> and on the decline as a manager. I can't imagine. Yeah. It must be hard enough playing for your dad, full yeah. stop, even if everything's going well. But to play for yeah. someone who's perhaps losing control of their abilities yeah, yeah. must have been tricky. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting about Nigel Clough because you, you're right. He's had to be such a high standard. He played for England, but for me, he, ne- he was never part of that elite. I think it sums up how average England were that Nigel Clark- Clough was coming on uh, off the bench. Say, in, I've got in, to uh, repeat, it, he was the next Gazelle. <laughs> <laughs> that was never. I don't think anyone shared that impression. What was what was your perception of Nigel Clough, Michael? What? Was he a big deal? Yeah. Have I made this well, up? Well, I think he's one of those players that were he around now he would sit behind the strikers and he would be like David Silva, that type of player. But the way the Premier League was played back then, and there's an argument the way some of the teams still play, that he just wasn't very effective or certainly wasn't effective enough. I think he had a great technical ability, but if you're a striker, you're judged on goals. Well, we only made 10 starts in two years under Roy Evans. I thought if Nigel Clough was around now, he'd be Adam Lallana. 
is exa- almost exactly the same. That's... Do you know what? Nigel Clough would have been a superb 80s footballer, but pr- probably not a 90s footballer at that time. He was maybe about five years too late. I think it must have been awful. You're right. To play under your dad, who's essentially, you know, lost control of the team and themselves, it must be awful to be in that dressing room. It must be absolutely... And then you go and you sign with Graham Souness. <laughs> and it's just out of the frying pan into the fire. He did play. He played for England. Yeah. Didn't he? Yeah. He must, that's right. I think he was slightly before my time in that I didn't really... I didn't, I didn't clock him being anything other than the guy that was still at Liverpool. I think, I think we've established you've got no idea who Nigel Clough is. <laughs> yeah, he was your comparison. Gaza. <laughs> I don't think you're thinking of the same guy. Maybe we should just move on. He, he made one of the best ever Liverpool debuts. He scored two goals on his debut. So yeah. when you come over with that expectation and you score two, but he was quite expensive, 2.2... 2. 2.3 million in 1993. That's mad. A lot of, a lot of money. A lot of excitement about him. A lot of excitement about him. <laughs> I don't know if you remember who he was compared to. Yeah. At the time. <laughs> um, should we move on? Who else have we got in midfield? Oh, Istvan Cosma. <laughs> Anyone? So who's... who's? Uh, again, no, no profile on the uh, Liverpool website. <laughs> um, that must be heartbreaking. Legend has it that Platini... Uh, calls up Sunez and said, "You've got to check out this guy. <laughs> he's, he's he's called Eric Cantona. <laughs> Sunez has just joined the club, and he goes, "What's he like?" He says, "Astonishing footballer. Bit of, bit of a problem off the pitch." And Sunez goes, "Oh, we can't be having any problematic <laughs> players." Signs Istvan Cosma for three hundred grand. Um, in fairness to Istvan, and I think this speaks to the quality of the man, he's a Dunfermline athletic legend. <laughs> um, fared much better at Dunfermline athletic, uh, but he only he played 10 games for Liverpool with a win percentage of 20%. Wow. I, yeah. I, I read that he was like famous for pulling out of tackles. Like If someone was sliding in to tackle him, he would just chicken out of it every time. <laughs> Which is not, you never hear that. I've never heard that about That's a, a very schoolyard black. thing to be known yeah, for, no. isn't it? You don't want to get rips in your trousers, you mum furious. <laughs> I, that thing with Cantona not signing must just eat you up when he then, that must be the worst thing that can happen as a manager is that there's all the myths about people who've almost signed people. I think I'd always end up signing players for fear of what might happen if I didn't sign them. <laughs> you'd sign, so you'd sign all the players? I'd sign all the players. <laughs> so you, you'd have, you'd have a, a squad of a thousand and, and no, no other teams would have any players. Yeah. <laughs> like it would work. It would require infinite money. Yeah. If, if Cantona had like Kung Fu kicked the crowd a few years earlier, Sunes would have snapped him up. Yeah. Like, this, this is the kind of psychopath I want in my team. He's signing Julian Dix. So it's <laughs> like, he just didn't. you aren't worried about difficult personalities. Uh, yeah. Um, so that's Clough and Cosma. Yeah. And then who are the other two for your midfield? Ah, how do you feel? About Jean-Michel Ferry. Oh, yes, please. So this is someone I've never heard of. You joined the club? (laughs) (laughs) Good old Jean-Michel Ferry. Uh, Julier's first signing for Liverpool. Uh, 1.5 million in 1998. Uh, He played a total of 47 minutes for Liverpool (laughs) in his career. 
um, which works out. Hang on, just bear with me. <laughs> the calculator is out. Uh, Thirty-one thousand nine hundred and fourteen pounds a minute. Oh. <laughs> bad going yeah it's pretty extraordinary it's almost worth it for the headline and the echo when he signed though which of course was ferry across the mersey oh, lovely lovely really? yeah do you think do julio you... had seen that do you think that was <laughs> he could see that'll get the fans on board and i said but you know the rumor why he signed is that he he'd played with gerard Hule earlier and that all the players thought he was in there as julio's mole in the dressing room to find out what oh. was going on and oh, Robbie wow. Fowler wrote about this in his autobiography. It's a direct quote. Everyone else was thinking that he was a spy. And we joked that he had a tape recorder in the bag, which, which he took back to Julia every night. That he was not there as a player, but to kind of give the goss. Well, that, I mean, is that a thing that happens? I suppose that must be a thing that happens, is it? Well, yeah. Uh, Kevin um, Nolan signed for West Ham a few years ago. He was big. He played with Big Sam, and he was kind of there straight away as captain. He was thought to be a bit of a mole in the dressing room and a bridge between the manager and the players. You'd think you could just leave a tape recorder in the dressing room. <laughs> Why do you need to pay a guy over a million and a half? That would be feasible. <laughs> um, what do you know about him, John? Uh, absolutely nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I know he was expensive and he played for 47 minutes. I mean, how, many, how much does anyone really know about someone who played 47 minutes at their club? <laughs> <laughs> were they the? Well, that was that one appearance. I mean, no, he, 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 that's two appearances. But it's quite common to get get to a game late and say I've missed the first half. But it's quite rare to get to a game late and say I've missed his career. <laughs> <laughs> how, how do you feel about the whole um, Evans Hulier double appointment? Like, what was that like at the time as a fan? Confusing. It was yeah. a bit like when you're sort of you have your mum and dad bring you in the room for a chat and tell tell you they're breaking up but they're they're not going to move apart (laughs) and you're like okay and then next thing you know your mum's going for coffee with another man (laughs) and he he's Roy Evans (laughs) meanwhile Gerard Houllier is still sleeping in the spare room and you're not quite sure who's taking you to school. <laughs> you're noted for your partnership with Vellis James. If the two of you were to manage a football club, what? how would you divvy up the responsibilities and do you think it would work? I would be in charge of tactics, man management, <laughs> formation, wages, contracts, negotiations, brand uh, sort of relationships, kit, sponsors, ticketing, ticket pricing... <laughs> Uh, Ellis would stand and at the. I know exactly what he would do. He would stand at the side of training and go, "Look at his thighs. <laughs> He's got enormous thighs." Do you know he used to have big thighs? John Charles. John Charles uh, once didn't play for Wales because he didn't have any boots, and he would sort of. You would be trying to sort of discuss how we're going to set up for the, you know, quarterfinal of the League Cup. And Ellis would tell you a completely irrelevant anecdote about a football <laughs> you'd never heard of with a sort of distant look in his eye. And you just have to sort of wait it out. <laughs> you can't be doing that at half time. You've got a 15 minute window to motivate the players. You can't have an anecdote about John Charles missing his shoes. He could do it while you go for a fag, John. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would definitely be going for a fag at half time. Ellis would be in charge of club nostalgia. <laughs> So if there was a uh, yeah, if there was a trophy room and the honours board and a wall of sort of black and white photographs of men in big shorts 
um, hitting balls with bad boots and goalkeepers with no gloves. He'd be all over that. (laughs) (laughs) So should we complete the midfield, John? Yeah, well, this is a a tricky one because I didn't want another... There are other candidates, but they just... You're talking about people who played once. So I thought we'd go for maybe someone who was slightly more familiar, but it's not technically a 90s player. It's early 2000s. Is that okay? Well, you've got... Yeah, you've got a 90s or a 2000s option. Jimmy Carter would be the 90s option. My feeling with Jimmy Carter is always, how much do you think the fact he was called Jimmy Carter? <laughs> like, how much banter is there about that in the dressing room, do you think? Early 90s? I don't know if footballers would know about the fact he had the same name as the 39th president of the United States. But, <laughs> but, but coming, off you... the, coming off the back of Vietnam like he did, he did tremendously well to come in, break his way into that Liverpool team. He, he didn't get re-elected, though, did he? <laughs> no. But, um, I suppose Jimmy Carter was joining Liverpool only 12 years after Jimmy Carter had left <laughs> uh, the White House. So it, it would only be a reference equivalent to if a player was called George Bush now. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, that's it a, would, it would, yeah, that would be a problem. But yeah, but George, George Bush two terms, you see, it's not, yeah, not in like for like. George H.W. Bush, I maybe. I think if, if there was a footballer called George Bush, surely it would come up. <laughs> But generally, my favourite Jimmy Carter fact is that Kenny Dalglish famously, like, very timekeeping is massively important to Kenny Dalglish. And when Jimmy Carter played for Millwall, was got the call to go up to Liverpool. He was getting in the taxi outside his house. His wife was like showing him off, and the door slammed behind him, locking their two-year-old in the house. This is as he's going on the way to sign for Liverpool. Right. So he had to delay. He had to try and get the two-year-old out of the house, and they managed to go around the back and got the son to. They coaxed him through a cat flap. Is the quote he gives oh in interviews. <laughs> He's about this took, took about three hours. Eventually, he misses his train, gets his way to Liverpool, and Kenny Dalglish is fuming with how late he is on this like, this big opportunity. And he said his the relationship never recovered. Dalglish, of course, resigned four weeks later. Was it was the stress of this oh. situation? Might have added to it. I think, when I you mean, said the relationship never recovered, I thought you meant with his wife, <laughs> <laughs> the with his child, with his child. <laughs> <laughs> he he, um, he came in again at that appalling time for Liverpool. So six weeks, uh, six, six weeks after he was signed, Dalglish left. Souness only used him a couple of times. He's one of those people who just you never really sort of settled at a club. But his best period was for Millwall. Um, but he was the first ever British Asian player to play in the Premier League. Yeah, um, oh, but, yeah. But Big. never told anyone that he was of mixed heritage. So. That was sort of not really, I don't know what whether it would have been celebrated at the time, but certainly yeah. would be celebrated now. I fear that football being what it was and still is in many places, it was probably to avoid any unnecessary attention and hassle and abuse. Yeah, I'm starting, though, having looked at a lot of these players, to think that that, um, that early 90s Liverpool kit with the three stripes over the right shoulder yeah. was something of a curse. <laughs> Because every time you Google these players, they're all wearing that kit. <laughs> I, I think my favourite Liverpool kit of that era, probably my favourite Liverpool kit, is the, it's an Adidas one as well, but it's it's the candy one. It's got like the kind of faded white triangles all over it. That I think that was probably the one before that. Well, the, the, best, the best one is the, it's sort of more silver, is that this is the one that I would have seen John Barnes in. It's the eighty-eight to eighty-nine away shirt. It's absolutely beautiful. 
It's got it's got sort of um, shiny silver stripes. Oh yeah, that's that's nice. My my fav- my favourite Liverpool kit is the uh, 1985 to 87 home shirt. Um, so more mo- your modern selection for this kind of midfield position instead of Jimmy Carter, you would have picked Bruno Cheru. Oh yes, uh, six point five million in oh, two thousand and two. That's a lot of money. Houllier said of him he was the new Zidane. Oh, um, I mean. and if you look at him, I'll give it to Julio. He does look a lot like Zidane, <laughs> but that really is where any comparisons end. Though let, I've got to give uh, Bruno his dues. He was voted best player of the 2004 FA Cup fourth round. <laughs> and that's not something you can take away from a man. <laughs> if Julian Dix is the folly of Souness, Bruno Cheru is the folly of Houllier. I think he perfectly sums up that silly kind of French player, that big money who just did nothing for him. I just think you can't be saying someone's the new Zidane. It's just setting yourself up. The best he can do is be the best player in the world and just fulfil expectations. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah, like, yeah. You shouldn't be saying that about someone. Say he's the new Nigel Clough. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Give him some something to sort of work towards. Yeah, your front line, John. Well, this is a, a name known amongst Liverpool circles, uh, but also broader footballing circles as one of the worst players ever at any club, uh, and it's uh, Sean Dundee. Apparently, yeah. uh, used to turn up to training in yesterday's clothes, stinking of booze. Oh, oh wow! Um, when he was tapped up by a German team, an undisclosed German team, to sign from Liverpool. His first question was, what were the nightclubs like in the city? And they, <laughs> they ran a mile. He would often be found driving around the city centre looking for, well, this was the diplomatic quote used, female companionship. <laughs> and I, from, from what I've read, just the most appalling attitude. Uh, what was it someone said? Roy Evans described him as terrible on and off the pitch. <laughs> in, a, in a vote for Liverpool's worst, worst ever striker, he uh, he received 62% of the vote. Wow, that's uh, mad. And scored three goals in 12 games for the reserves. That's oh, mad. Wow. I'd read that he turned up, the, when he signed for the club, he turned up really overweight and massively unfit. And it took him ages like of personal kind of one-to-one coaching to get him into a state where he could play a game of football. Yeah, he's one of those people who, when you hear what other people say about him, you go, it can't be all that bad. And then you read his account and it is just total denial. And you're like, oh, yeah, I can see this guy was a complete nightmare. (laughs) Well, he said he had a bad relationship with Gerard Houllier. There's one story where he he wanted a meeting with Houllier to say, why aren't you picking me? And in the meeting, he sat down with Houllier and Houllier's phone rang. And Houllier just sat there on the phone for 15 minutes while Sean Dundee had to sit there and just wait for him to finish. And Sean O'Neill like, says, this is an example of the disrespect offered to me. But clearly, like you say, there were problems off the pitch. Every, it's not just Julio who said it, it's Roy Evans too. There, there's, one, there's one anecdote that um, apparently he turned up for training one day and the team had gone away to a training camp and no one had told him. <laughs> that he turned up and they were all gone. He's got a decent record at other clubs though. Yeah, so yeah. he was playing in... Um... In South Africa, he's from Durban, where Bruce Grobbler was also uh, born, which is a fact that got me banned from a pub quiz in Bristol in 2004. <laughs> what the, was quest- the-, the question was, um, where was Bruce Grobbler born? Right? Pretty simple yeah. question. I banked Durban, South Africa. 
then when the answers were given out, this was at a pub called the White Bear, and the answers were read out, and the answer was Zimbabwe. Straight, straight, no, it's not. He played for Zimbabwe, but he was born in Durban, South Africa. So I got my phone, which at the time was, it was one of the first internet-enabled phones, but it wasn't internet, it was called WAP. Do you remember WAP, yeah. WAP yeah. phones? Yeah. So I, the first time I ever used the internet on a phone, it was to prove that Bruce Grobler was born in <laughs> Durban, South Africa, and not in Zimbabwe. And I managed to get, it took like five or 10 minutes to navigate how to use the internet on this phone. But I managed to get like a text version of a website and I showed it to the, the quiz master to prove that he was born in, in Durban. Um, but by then, I think I'd become so enthusiastic that uh, the fact I was right was, was secondary um, <laughs> to, the, to the fact I was quite rambunctious. Uh, so I was, I was banned not just from that quiz, but from all future quizzes. <laughs> At the, at, the, at the White Bear. But, you know, 24 goals in 34 games for TSF Ditzingen. Decent. Uh, 36 goals in 85 games for Karlsruhe SC. But these are, aren't bad amounts at all. Yeah. So he's, he's not a bad player. No, I think he just didn't settle, did he, at Liverpool? He scored, I think you sold him to Stuttgart and he got 25 goals in 77 games there immediately after. So he clearly had ability. If you're failing to break up the partnership of Michael Owen and Karl Heinz Riedel, you're in trouble. <laughs> because Karl Heinz Riedel was very nearly my second pick for, uh, really? for worst striker. Wow. But there are caveats with Karl Heinz Riedel. What are the caveats? Well, he was good. Well, are we moving on from Sean Dundee? Oh, yeah, let's yeah. move on from Sean Dundee. Uh, but he, but Sean Dundee is one of the great worst footballers, yeah. I think. <laughs> so, so let's complete the team, John. So Karl-Heinz Riedel misses out because I think in fairness to uh, KHR, uh, <laughs> he, he was 32 when he was signed by Liverpool. Wow. He'd won the Champions League and he'd won a World Cup and he was top yeah. scorer, joint top scorer in Euro 92. So, it, and, and also he wasn't that bad. He scored 11 goals in 60 games, but really, you know, he was up against Owen and Fowler. Yeah. So I don't think it's fair to say that he was a bad player. He was a great player. He, he played in the, um, uh, he scored a penalty against England in the 1990 semi final. Yeah. He's got a really strong record for everyone. Yeah, yeah I thought he was so, good. So I've had to move to the 2000s, but it's justified because I I think there is an argument that this player is one of the worst strikers in the history of world football. <laughs> and it's uh, your friend and mine, El Hadj Diouf. Oh, yes. I'm so excited to talk about this man. So El Hadj Diouf is one of those players a bit like Balotelli, where their attitude and their sense of their self-image is so insane. But at least with Balotelli, he's a, Balotelli is a great player. And the tragedy is he never lived up or yeah. has sort of wasted that talent in, in incidents both controversial and hilarious. <laughs> but El Hajjouf was, he was a serial spitter on yeah. people, yeah. which is kind of like... It that's sort of the worst, really. Yeah, biter uh, maybe is up there. Biter, yeah. I think if you ask 
ask any police officer, they'd rather be punched than spat at. That's a thing that's often said on like traffic cops and street crime UK. I once saw two guys walking away from Leighton Orient spitting on people's backs as they walked to the uh, train station. That is disgusting. In in a uncharacteristic display of courage, I confronted them, and within I'd say. 0.5 seconds regretted it as they then just went for me and ch- chased me in a sort of bizarrely <laughs> comedic way because there was a zebra crossing right by where we were <laughs> so every time I would run away from them cars would quite rightly stop to give me right of way and and one car pulled over and said do you need any help and at that point they they went away, but I, I did report it to the police. It was absolutely vile. Um, but but El Hadj Jeff's career goal scoring record is appalling. It's mad. I couldn't it believe it was this bad. Absolutely appalling. Um, so just to walk you through um, a few stats. So to put it in context, I've mentioned Balotelli. His career average is a goal every two two and a half games. Yeah, you know that's that's decent. Yeah. Um, El Hadj Jerf has a career average of a goal every 6.8 games. <laughs> That's across his entire career. <laughs> his average for Liverpool was a goal every 13.16 games. <laughs> Mad. In the league, his average goals for Liverpool, and this is it made 55 appearances for Liverpool. His league goal average is a goal every 18.3 games. But to keep playing a striker who's not scoring, it blows my mind how bad he was. And when you add in his attitude stinking and yeah. the spitting, do, like, do you think he's awful? Do you think his bad attitude tricks people to think he must? I always think with these bad attitude players, there's a slight element that they're almost people presume they're better than they are as a talent because they've got the attitude of a of a tortured genius. He's, I believe, this comes from. Um, a quote from uh, a Liverpool player whose name now escapes me. While you check that, I'll just throw in this, that um, El Hajjouf absolutely hates Steven Gerrard and Jamie Carragher. And when you read any interview with him, like contemporary interview, he uses it as an opportunity to slag those two off. He said that like, Steven Gerrard absolutely killed Liverpool when he slipped for the to lose the Premiership a few Premier League a few years ago. And he said about Jamie Carragher, the difference between me and Jamie Carragher is that I am world-class and he is a shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a quote from Jamie Carragher on El Hadjouf. He has one of the worst strike rates of any forward in Liverpool history. He's the only number nine to ever go through a whole season without scoring. In fact, he's probably the only number nine of any club to do that. He was always the last one to get picked in training. And if you look at his oh, stats... The last one to get picked in training is such... I didn't know they ever picked teams. <laughs> yeah, I thought that happened at school. I didn't realise that happened in the Premier League. So El Hadjouf, I love saying his name. In 2003-04 season, he played for Liverpool 26 times in the league, four times in Europe, uh, three times in Cups. So 33 appearances total, didn't score a single goal. He has only once in his career... Bear in mind, this is someone who has described themselves as a world-class player. He has only once in his career scored 10 goals in a season. (laughs) And that is a career that has spanned 16 years. When he played for Bolton, he scored nine nine league goals in 27 games his first season. So, okay, fair enough. 
Next season, he scored three. The season after that, he scored five. The season after that, he scored four in 34 games. I, I'm not convinced he's a footballer. <laughs> It's amazing. How good he was the classic sign from a World Cup, wasn't he? Yeah. Like he was really good in yeah in two thousand two. But how good was like? But but what's he doing? If like if you're in that team with that kind of goal average, then you're Emil Heskey holding up the ball. That's the only reason you should be playing up front. Yeah, but he's not, he's not noted for that at all. No. I don't have any memory of that. He's there to score goals. That was El Hadjiu's game. Yeah. Didn't he play for Leeds as well, I think, at one point? Yeah, and Rangers. I think he turned up just as that Liverpool team was almost going to be, was almost good enough to win the league. And that 30 years of, I read like a very long article, uh, almost certainly in The Athletic, when Liverpool won the league, which is like about every season of those 30 years. And that... They did get close under Houllier and then they signed El Hajjouf. He's arguably... Well, I suppose the way to conclude this, John, is to say who would be your manager and who would be your captain and your captain should be the worst player in the team. Oh, Captain El Hajjouf, without a doubt. <laughs> like, worse than Sean Dundee because at least with Sean Dundee, you can you can maybe, looking at his stats from other clubs and, of, you know, in fairness, not playing at necessarily as, as high a level, quite as high a level as Liverpool, but... It, at least you look at that and go, okay, there's he can score goals. He knows how to play football. Maybe he was going through a crazy time. Maybe he had yeah. alcohol problems. I'm sure he did. He clearly drank a lot. So you can kind of go, right, nightmare time at Liverpool. El Hadjouf is one of the worst. I, he's got to be one of the worst footballers to ever play in the Premier League. Yeah. And yeah. he spat at fans. He spat at other players. He, he taunted uh, Jamie Mackey who was lying on the pitch with a broken leg, uh, which led to uh, Neil Warnock calling him lower than a sewer rat. (laughs) I mean, he is not well liked. No, when when Neil Warnock says that, you know, you know, you've done messed up. But it's to maintain that arrogance in spite of the facts, which is quite (laughs) extraordinary. I mean, his... He, he's got one of the longest controversies section on Wikipedia of any footballer. <laughs> um, well, let's press you for a manager, and I think there's probably oh, only one choice. Graham Souness. <laughs> and and, and he, he's, he is a man whose opinion I respect on football, and I, I do enjoy his, his commentary on footballing yeah, matters. Yeah, I think he's a and, good... And I appreciate his honesty also in in what an absolute car crash his time at Liverpool was. He was an impossible position, but he dismantled that club at a yeah. time when it really needed rebuilding. I, I would love to know how he'd have got on with El Hadjjurf. <laughs> I think they'd have liked each other, bizarrely. Do you know what? would have got on. Razor Ruddock, Julian Dix, Sean Dundee, El Hadjjurf would have been quite an intimidate. You wouldn't know whether you're going to get your leg broken and get spat at. <laughs> Or get sort of taken to a strip club at two in the morning. John, we are our final question we ask of all our guests. If you could press a button and it would take you back in time to the 1st of January 1990 and relive it all again, would you? And maybe what would you do differently if you would? No, it was not an it was not a nice time to be a Liverpool fan. And I totally understand like other clubs going, other fans going, yeah, but you won this, that, and the other in that time. The nineties. I mean, can you imagine the odds you'd have got in 1989 of Liverpool won't win the league for another 30 years? Yeah. I mean, it'd be insane. (laughs) But I think as a Liverpool fan, it is the worst decade 
in the history of the club. Yeah, but there you go. No, I, I could do, I could kind of do without most of the 90s uh, in, in a Liverpool sense. Thank you. <laughs> um, John Robbins, thank you very much. Thanks, guys. That was John Robbins on Liverpool. If you want to discuss that 11, you can do it on our forum if you sign up as a Patreon member. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we have one more episode before the final end of season quiz, the big one. And it is Henning Vane talking about Germany in the 90s. It is go- it's a genuinely fascinating and funny conversation. There's lots of good stuff about working with Lothar Matthäus as well. Join us for that next week. Uh, until then, I'm not going to lie, Chris Skull's laptop's died, so I'm going to have to do the sign-off. Do you want to do it, Michael? I'd love to. Peter Schmeichel, see you next week or... <laughs> there we go. Perfect. Bye. Go, let Hit over the top! This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today.